0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Less than two weeks after the mass shooting in San Jose, a federal judge overturned California's longtime ban on assault weapons. Condemnation of the decision was swift from the governor to the mayor of San Jose, Sam Licardo. It's hard to escape the conclusion that a nation with more than 300 million guns, uh, the solution is not more guns. The language used by Judge Roger Benitez comparing an AR-15 rifle to a Swiss Army knife, quote, good for both home and battle, drew outrage from gun safety advocates and victims of gun violence. Chris Brown is the president of Brady United Against Gun Violence. It's so shocking to have this judge say that it's like a Swiss Army knife. A Swiss Army knife doesn't kill hundreds of people. Within 10 seconds, that's what this weapon does. Joining me is Second Amendment expert Adam Winkler, a professor at UCLA Law School. Adam, explain the ruling for us.
1: Well, the ruling in Miller v. Bonta held that California's restriction on military-style assault weapons was unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. The
0: judge compared the AR-15 rifle to the Swiss Army knife, good for both home and battle. What's behind this comparison?
1: Well, perhaps the most surprising thing about the opinion was the judge's equating of a military-style assault rifle to a Swiss Army knife. Of course, a military-style assault rifle is far more dangerous than a Swiss Army knife. But the point that the judge is making is that, like a Swiss Army knife, many people will have this kind of device, and it's perfectly lawful, and they don't do anything wrong with it. And indeed, he makes the point in the opinion that knives kill more people in California than assault rifles every year.
0: The way he wrote the decision, do you think it was designed to shock...
1: I don't know if it was designed to shock, but it's certainly designed to get the attention of the courts of appeals. And the judge was very careful to detail what was the basis of his ruling. What are the facts that he accepted? Who are the witnesses and experts that he found most persuasive? And what was the data that he thought was most influential? And that will, in part, influence the court of appeals when they hear this appeal in this case, because they'll be limited in some ways by the facts as the lower court found them.
0: What was the state's argument?
1: Well, the state argued that these military-style assault weapons are not constitutionally protected by the Second Amendment, that they're not commonly used for self-defense, and that they have special dangers, kind of like a machine gun, even though they're not machine guns, but like a machine gun in that they present special, unusual dangers in in a firearm. But the judge rejected those arguments, finding that military-style rifles were really no different from other types of rifles, and that prohibiting access to these weapons, which are not associated with a lot of criminal misuse or criminal violence relative to other firearms, was unconstitutional.
0: As I've said before, I don't know much about guns, but isn't this the style of gun that's been used in mass shootings?
1: This style of gun has been used in many high-profile mass shootings, which is partly why The gun safety movement has been trying to ban these weapons. However, it is important to recognize that in more than half of mass shootings, people use handguns. And it's not clear that the use of a military-style assault rifle really is going to change a mass shooting. You can do the same kind of damage in the kind of close-range confines of most mass shootings with a handgun or other type of rifle.
0: Similar assault weapons bans, have they been upheld by other federal district courts or appellate courts?
1: We have seen other states' bans on military-style assault rifles be subject to judicial review. Most courts have upheld those laws, finding that while these military-style weapons are in common use and thus probably protected by the Second Amendment, at least at first glance, the courts have generally said that the government has sufficiently strong reasons to limit access to these weapons because of their special dangers. Judge Benitez, however, in California did not buy into the argument that these firearms posed special dangers, and that's why he compared them to Swiss Army knives.
0: And it's a minority of states that have these assault weapons bans.
1: That's right. There's only a handful of the 50 states have these military-style assault rifle bans. There have been efforts to ban them at the federal level, including a 10-year period in which they were banned at the federal level. But gun safety advocates have not been able to get these laws adopted in other states. And I think no matter how many states adopt them, these laws are likely to run into some hostile treatment when this issue gets to the United States Supreme Court.
0: some of the talk after this opinion has been, well, gun rights advocates are becoming emboldened by the federal judiciary that's become more conservative and the Supreme Court that's become more
1: conservative. Well, there is no doubt about that, that the court has become more conservative. The federal courts generally have become more conservative. In fact, Judge Benitez, who's got kind of a long history of striking down California gun regulations, has often been overturned on appeal in the Ninth Circuit. But recently, he's had some of his opinions upheld on appeal, in part because the Ninth Circuit has become more conservative. But I do think that the appointment of three justices to the Supreme Court by President Trump all of whom have strong pro-gun records, uh, suggest that restrictions on military-style assault rifles are likely to run afoul of the new Supreme Court. The
0: state says it will appeal Benitez's ruling to the Ninth Circuit. The state is also appealing the judge's 2017 ruling against the state's nearly two-decade-old ban on the sales and purchases of magazines, including more than 10 Bullets. That decision was upheld in August by a three-judge panel, but the Ninth Circuit said in March that an 11-member panel will rehear the case. The state is also appealing Benitez's decision in April of 2020, blocking a 2019 California law requiring background checks for anyone buying ammunition. So, Adam, explain why all these gun cases came before this same judge.
1: Well, gun rights groups have done some forum shopping and have been pursuing litigation in Judge Benitez's court. They've been trying to get Judge Benitez to be the one who rules on their cases. Uh, It's a smart strategy for litigation because they know that the district court, the trial court, will control the interpretation of the facts on the ground. Credibility of witnesses, uh, what evidence is appropriate and probative, um, and the courts of appeals are often limited in their ability to uh, really control the record uh, of a lawsuit. So uh, th- this is part of a concerted effort by California gun rights groups, and uh, so far it's uh, looking to prove pretty successful.
0: When it reaches the Ninth Circuit, I know that one of his rulings was upheld on appeal by a three-judge panel and is going to the full circuit. So when this reaches the Ninth Circuit. What are the chances now that the circuit has changed a bit after President Trump's appointees?
1: Well, it's very hard to predict what's going to come out of the Ninth Circuit. It used to be that the Ninth Circuit was a very reliable, progressive, or liberal circuit, where on issues like guns, you could count on the Court of Appeals to overturn a decision like the one we had from Judge Benitez on assault weapons. But because of the Trump appointees on the Ninth Circuit, it's a much more balanced bench than it once was. And you never know who's going to be appointed, either for the three-judge panel that will hear the appeal or even the 11-member on banc panel that might hear an appeal or a rehearing of whatever that three-judge panel decides. It used to be that they were reliably liberal, but now it's a much more balanced bench.
0: Are gun rights groups becoming bolder in court because of the more conservative federal judiciary
1: I'm not sure that gun rights advocates have become more bold in their lawsuits in the federal courts truth be told, for the last 15 years, they've really been aggressively pursuing litigation to challenge gun control laws, really ever since the Heller decision back in 2008. The difference is, is now gun rights advocates are more hopeful than ever that they'll win in those court cases because the courts have become more conservative, and the Supreme Court in particular has new members that seem likely to strike down gun control laws in favor of a broad and expansive reading of the Second Amendment
0: tell us about the supreme court it's going to issue its first major decision on second amendment in two decades next term tell us what's before the court
1: the supreme court has agreed to hear a challenge out of new york where it is impermissible to carry a concealed weapon unless you get a permit and it's very very difficult to get a permit uh, and this kind of discretionary permitting policy that new york and about 10 other states use um, is going to go to the Supreme Court and the court's going to decide whether you have a right to carry a gun outside the home. And if so, what kind of permitting process can states impose before you're allowed to carry that firearm?
0: And the composition of the court has changed, as you mentioned. Is that the reason why they're finally taking up a gun rights case like this?
1: There is no doubt that the changes in the Supreme Court explain why the court has taken Second Amendment cases, both last term and this term. The last term, the court took a Second Amendment case, but it turned out to be moot, and so they didn't ultimately issue a ruling. Um, But there's no doubt that the uh, addition of new justices has changed calculus on the Supreme Court. Um, with Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh all saying that it's time for the court to take more Second Amendment cases and to put more uh, teeth into the Second Amendment. Now with the addition of Justice Barrett, it seems like that group of justices finally has their majority.
0: Has Barrett ruled on Second Amendment cases?
1: Yes. uh, Justice Barrett, when she was a lower court judge, issued um, a very controversial ruling uh, where she was actually the dissenting judge. The court upheld a ban on felons possessing firearms. And Justice Barrett, when a lower court judge dissented from that ruling, arguing that the lifetime ban on felons possessing firearms was overbroad and should be uh, restricted and limited.
0: And Do you see any progress being made for legislation on gun control?
1: The prospects for gun control at the federal level do not seem good. It doesn't seem like uh, any proposal for gun regulation would surmount the 60-vote hurdle uh, that you need to pass legislation through the Senate. So, so long as the filibuster remains in place, I think the possibility of significant federal gun safety regulation is unlikely.
0: And what can President Biden do through executive order? How much can he
1: do through executive order? Biden can do some things by executive order, but not much, right? So executive orders give the president the ability to um, carve out an interpretation of existing federal statutes. But the NRA has written America's gun laws very carefully to restrict the ability of the president uh, uh, to find that kind of wiggle room. He's going to make some efforts, for instance, to crack down on ghost guns. These are guns that are homemade that don't have serial numbers, and he might be able to do some things on restricting importation of military-style assault weapons, but many of them are manufactured domestically, and a ban on imports won't have a significant impact on the gun debate in America. The
0: NRA has, has a lot of different problems and is facing lawsuits. Does that have any effect on the gun lobby?
1: The NRA has never been weaker uh, than it is right now. It's facing a real existential crisis. The New York attorney general is trying trying to put the NRA out of business. Uh, and so far it looks like uh, the attorney general is doing a pretty good job of it. And the NRA is uh, not mounting a very vigorous defense that's persuasive. Uh, there does seem to be a long history of mismanagement of the NRA and some corruption inside. However, Uh, that's not going to affect the gun debate that much. Gun rights have never been stronger in America. Uh, The Republican Party is dead set against any new gun control laws. There's a strong new conservative majority on the Supreme Court that seems ready to expand gun rights. And So the NRA is facing untold challenges, but the gun rights movement remains very strong in America.
0: Thanks, Adam. That's Professor Adam Winkler of UCLA Law School. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court has ruled that the government can block immigrants with temporary protected status from applying for green cards if they enter the country unlawfully. It was a unanimous decision by the court, the third such decision on immigration matters in as many weeks. Joining me is immigration expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland & Knight. Leon, explain what TPS is and the facts in the case.
2: Temporary protected status is a status that the federal government has because the Congress conferred it onto the president many decades ago as part of the Immigration and Nationality Act. And what that status says is during times of very major difficulty in a country, such as a natural disaster or a dangerous condition of a military conflict or even a pandemic, which is necessary for COVID, that the government can actually confer something called temporary protective status and say, until whatever crisis is happening in your country is over, you can stay here without being deported and you can work here. The crisis that's created in this case is because many people who have temporary protective status have had it for 20 or 30 years because the government starts to feel bad and never ends the temporary crisis. It says, Oh well, people have had children. They've had roots in the United States. Now those children are American citizens. They'll make them go home. People have this flux status for decades, such as a man in this case, Jose Santos Sanchez, who came in 1997 and actually got temporary protective status based on earthquakes that happened in El Salvador in 2001. So now we're talking about 20 years later. Was he able to get a green card? on the basis of his granting of temporary protection status. Because you can't get a green card from inside the United States from an employer unless you have been, or even from your spouse, unless you were someone who entered legally and then overstayed and then got TPS. But if you entered illegally, you can't get temporary protection status. That was the understanding until people started suing and saying, well, maybe I can because temporary protected status the statute says we're going to treat you as if you had a non-immigrant visa and so every person with a non-immigrant visa was someone who went to an airport and was admitted into the country so they're they're pretending like i was admitted into the country that was the theory of the case and that case was very successful in many circuits but it was not successful in the third circuit and so there was an appeal the Supreme Court about, well, who's right? Is it the Ninth Circuit or is it the Third Circuit? And so that's what the decision was based on, saying that the Third Circuit was right.
0: Justice Elena Kagan wrote the decision, and she always writes very clearly. And she said that there are two tracks. So explain the decision.
2: So there are two tracks in this thing. There is who is someone who is a non-immigrant to the United States and who is someone who was admitted to the United States? And so what admitted to the United States is, is that the reason your human body is in the United States is because you either entered through an airport, a land port of entry, or a sea port of entry. You presented a passport to a person with a blue uniform that says Customs and Border Protection. That person with a blue uniform swipes your passport and stamps it. That's called an admission. And so you need to be admitted into the country in order to get a green card. And then there's a separate concept called having non-immigrant status. And that is many people come to America, have non-immigrant status. They are students, they are workers, they are visitors, they are religious workers. There's all kinds of people with non-immigrant status. And what the TPS statute says is during the period that you have temporary protective status, you will be treated like one of these people who has a non-immigrant visa. And so the question is, does that sentence mean that you will be treated like that for the purpose of you can't be deported, or does it mean you will be treated like that for the purpose of you can't be deported? And also, when all of those people that we talked about, the students, the visitors, and the workers entering the country, they did go to an airport and get their visa stamp, so we're going to extend the legal fiction to you that you went to the airport and got your visa fed. And what Justice Kagan and the nine justices said was, no, we're not going to extend that legal fiction. We're going to say that this just means the bare minimum it means, which is that you're treated as being legally here, but it doesn't mean that you came here legally. So this is
0: another unanimous decision. There have been... Three immigration decisions in three weeks—they've all been unanimous. How do you account for that?
2: This is a very impressive run. That there have been three basically major concessions by the liberal justices on these immigration matters, and I think there's a couple of things going on here. Number one, I think they're definitely trying to trade for some of the bigger cases that they think are coming down the pipe, where they know they're going to need the help of Justice Gorsuch or. Justice Coney Barrett or Justice Roberts, and they're saying, let's show our magnanimity to our conservative colleagues in cases where we can limit the damage and reach these decisions, hoping that, let's say, if a case comes up next year on DACA, they'll be with us on whether DACA is legal or not, or on some of these asylum cases that may come up, they'll be on our side. So I think there's a little bit of that horse trading going on. But I also think that, for instance, in a case like Sanchez, this can actually be fixed very easily by the administration. So sort of a low-cost give to the conservative side, which is all the administration has to do to fix this problem is to give every single person with CPS a document called an advanced parole, which allows them to travel outside of the United States while they are on the CPS status. And what that advanced parole actually does is it allows for the person to leave and re-enter, and when they re-enter legally, they solve the problem that they couldn't solve previously before this case. So I think you will eventually see the administration announce those advanced paroles, which are perfectly legal, and this case will then have very limited practical meaning at that point.
0: If you look at the, the reasoning in this case, does this affect DREAMers in any way, the reasoning?
2: So it doesn't affect dreamers because the dreamers don't have the CPS status. But what it does sort of portend is this means both for dreamers and CPS individuals to be able to get this document I just discussed called an advanced parole as the only basis that they're going to be able to use to get a green card. Meaning if DACA is viewed as legal, And TPS is legal, but now you can't get a green card with TPS on its own unless you change your legality. What all of those people are going to have to do is get a document from USCIS that allows them to travel abroad and then return. And only when they do that, that's when they can apply for a green card.
0: Let's turn for a moment to the vice president's trip to Central America. She warned Central Americans not to migrate to the U.S. Do not come, do not come. If you come to our border, you'll be turned back. Is that, in fact, the case? Are they being turned back at the border?
2: So there are three groups of people who are arriving at the United States, and depending on which group you're in, your outcome is different. So if you are a single adult, Those single adults are currently being excluded from the United States. They're just pushed back. They're not even let in. Nobody talks to them. Under a authority called Title 42, which is a CDC authority that says during communicable disease crises, you can just be pushed back without any further analysis. That's what's happening to single adults. For unaccompanied minors on the other perspective, every unaccompanied minor is being allowed to come into the United States and make a claim for either asylum or special immigrant juvenile status. And that's where you're seeing these convention centers in California and in Texas. Um, And Texas is actually fighting the existence of these convention centers. But you're seeing them all along the southern border for housing children until you can put them with an adult sponsor, and then you can go through their case. And then there's a third group that's a hybrid group that's called family units. So that's adults with kids. And it seems like at the moment, about 60 to 70 percent of those family units are being allowed to enter to make their claim for asylum. And then another 30 percent or so are being excluded under Title 42. And so the outcome of you will be returned isn't exactly what's happening on the border right now unless you are a single adult. One other point I will make is that this rhetoric is very sort of counterproductive and complicated in this sense. The, the Biden administration, unlike the Trump administration, sort of has this moral problem where they don't want to make a decision about what constitutes Central American migration. The Trump administration was very comfortable saying that they, they believed 100% of this Central American migration was economic migration, and none of them were genuine refugees seeking to come in to avoid persecution. That is not a sentiment that the Biden administration believes. But the problem is, if you use rhetoric that says don't come to America because you'll be turned away, that's not what you would say if you thought there were some group within the larger group that are legitimate refugees. Because you would never say, for instance, to people in the Holocaust, hey, don't come. You'll be turned away because that's not the law. Of course. And and anyway, that wouldn't deter anyone anyway, because if your only choice is death. Of course you're going to come into the country. And so the point of that rhetoric is almost the reason why it's creating controversy on the Democratic side is because when you say things like don't come, you won't be allowed in, you're saying basically the same thing as the Trump administration, that at least the large majority, if not the entire bucket of people in Central America are not refugees. And so that's why you're seeing this pushback.
0: What I wanted to ask about, so as you mentioned, AOC, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was very critical of Kamala Harris's remarks. Do immigration advocates want everyone who comes to the borders to be allowed in? What are they looking for exactly?
2: I think there are different groups. I think there are some people that are out on that extreme and say, Look, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, people don't remember that the United States for the first 180 years of its existence had no, nothing. There was no immigration code. So you could just come to the United States and be here. And the United States didn't collapse or die during that period. And so there's no reason why you couldn't continue that. And that, that is actually not just a liberal viewpoint. That is held by also libertarians from places like the Cato Institute and other places like that where that's one group of people. And so, you know, I don't know if that's 10%, 15% of the opinion out there, but that, that is a group. There's another group that I would say maybe is another 20 25% that says, no, not everybody. But people should have a basic opportunity to be able to apply for asylum and if they're realistically refugees, you should be able to give them a fair process that determines that we're not actually pushing back a refugee that would then have something very bad happen to them because we mistakenly pushed them back. So that's another group. And then obviously you have the perspective of the Trump folks, which were that this group from Central America at large was economic-based migration. And so the idea was, don't let any of them in, and 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 try to take away all of the bases by which they might prove they are a refugee. And that perhaps was also, uh, you know, viewed as being extreme from that perspective because there were legitimate refugees within that group. And so it's just a matter of how you get that balance right of deterring. Economic-based migration, because the point is that all migration, that's economic-based migration, needs to happen through channels that exist in the system, albeit that those channels are not exactly easy to access, nor are they available in many cases. But still, you must access that. You can't just show up at the border illegally. But when there are genuine, real refugees to allow people to make those claims so that they can actually fairly be protected if they need that protection.
0: The idea is they're going to try to address the root causes of immigration by helping these countries. Has that worked
2: before? Well, this is what's complicated, and I've been saying this and people pretty much uh, tend to ignore this because it just makes it sound hopeless, but it's an important thing to really consider, which is if you take the gross domestic product per capita of the three main sending immigration countries in Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, we're talking about a three dollars to $4,000 per person gross domestic product. And even if you compare that to Mexico, which has about a nine dollars to $10,000 per capita gross domestic product, you then look at the fact that at the moment, this hasn't been true for the last 10 years, but it is true right at the moment, we are seeing a surge of migration also from Mexico. And that's partly because COVID has done some damage in Mexico. And it's also because obviously there's a worker shortage here in the United States where a lot of workers are being needed for things like home construction and other things of that nature. And so what you're saying is, okay, let's say I give $4 billion to a place and let's say all of that $4 billion is used constructively. That's still not going to get you anywhere near tripling the size of the economies of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And so people just have to be realistic about this, which is, you know, there's going to be always a comparison between what life is like in the United States and what life is like in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And so there's always going to be a push factor to get people or a pull factor to get people to emigrate into the United States. What what needs to happen is all of that needs to be viewed realistically, and to say, fine, some of this root cause investment matters because to be certain to make a place safe. I'm not talking about economically vibrant, but safe. Safe actually does solve some of the push factors that lead people to leave and to migrate to the United States. But I think that's the best you're going to be able to do if you think that you'd ever be able to make the three Central American countries completely oblivious to the attractiveness of the United States, that's a venture I don't think is worth pursuing because the United States is attractive against almost every country in the world. These are the economic opportunities. And so that will certainly always be the case against Central America as well.
0: Thanks for being on the show, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Night. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.